So last week we began looking at the, the matter of assurance of salvation, and we looked at what many call the, the solid grounds of assurance, the objective basis of one's assurance. And I did give you a homework assignment last week if you're here, and that was to read through 1 John and notice that John gives some subjective tests of assurance, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're looking at that because we're kind of in the midst of a series where we're, we're looking at some of the the different aspects or components of salvation and how God works it out. So we looked at justification, that the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And we look at the matter of assurance, which kind of flows out of that. And then next week, we're going to look at the, the matter of, of, of good works and growth and holiness and kind of the, the issue that James brings up in James chapter 2. So let me read from 1 John 5 as we look at the matter of assurance. So 1 John 5, reading verses 1 to 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let me pray. Lord, we come to sit beneath your word this morning to address this topic, even to examine ourselves in light of what your word says, Lord. Help us to see with eyes of faith. Help us to see honestly and truthfully. And Lord, we pray that this examination, this testing would be one in which we are drawn closer to Christ, that our assurance grows, that it helps us to see you as to see us as you see us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it right for a Christian to have assurance of their salvation? Think about it for a moment. Is it is it proper and appropriate for a Christian to have confidence that they're a child of God? Now, the answer, I hope, seems obvious to you, and I hope startles you, because why would you ask that question when we're in the midst of a series on this and you just preached a sermon you did last week? But I want you to have some historical awareness and appreciation for the heritage we have in our faith and in our theological inheritance. Because what for us is likely a settled question and seems silly and startling to ask was not always the case in church history. For example, imagine that you have been transported to the year 1431 and you're at a public trial and on trial is Joan of Arc, famous historical figure, very interesting historical figure who was put on trial by the English. And before you watch her burned at the stake, you hear the judges proclaim this charge against her. This woman sins when she says she is as certain of being received into paradise as if she were already a partaker of glory. We condemn Joan of Arc for this, seeing that on this earthly pilgrim journey, no one knows if they are worthy of glory or of punishment, which the sovereign judge alone can tell us. So that's one of the charges brought against Joan of Arc, 1431. Or if you had been alive and literate on the 13th day of January in the year 1547, you would have read hot off the Gutenberg press this declaration from the Council of Trent, Church Council of the Roman Catholic Church, who said this, it must not be said that sins are forgiven or have been forgiven to anyone who boasts 
of his confidence and assurance of their remission of sins. Though among heretics and schismatics, this vain and ungodly confidence may be, and in our troubled times indeed is found and preached with untiring fury. You can almost hear their animosity toward the doctrine of assurance. Or let's say you were a catechumen, you know, someone who's in Bible class in the year 1600, and your teacher is Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, who was Pope Clement VIII's personal theologian. If you were in his class being taught catechism, you'd have heard him utter this very pointed and passionate statement. He said this, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is, guess what? Assurance. The greatest of all Protestant heresies, in his mind, the official theologian of the church at the time, was assurance. But transport yourself to June of 1648. English Parliament has just concluded their session, and they have approved the Westminster Confession of Faith as the doctrinal standard of the church at the time in England. And you are reading through it. And in chapter 18, section one, you read these welcomed words. Those who truly believe on the Lord Jesus, love him sincerely, and strive to live in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace. And they may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, a hope that will never put them to shame. Do you you feel the kind of seismic shift that just took place in that statement from what I just read you? What brought about that seismic shift on the matter of assurance? How did the predominant view of assurance go from that cursed sin of presumption, a vain and ungodly confidence, to the blessed birthright of every believer, a hope that will not put you to shame? How, How did that shift take place? It was this. It was the Reformation's recovery of the most precious treasure that you find in the scriptures. Buried underneath a mountain of tradition, hidden behind a huge myriad of unbiblical rituals, and then locked away in the castles of the clergy, kept away from the people, was this biblical truth. The righteousness which God demands from you is actually gifted to you by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Or as the hymn writers would say, your righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No other righteousness can set a sinner free. That truth, hidden away, buried, locked away, was recovered and handed to the people. And that seismic shift then brought about this view that assurance is not ungodly confidence. It is a hope that will never put you to shame because the logic shifted on righteousness. Righteousness was not a status that you hope to one day achieve by cooperating with the grace of God and getting to the point that through the practices and works and rituals of the church, you actually became righteous. And then God declared you righteous. Righteousness was a gift you receive by faith in Christ and that God declares you in a moment in time righteous in his sight. You see, the logic works out very well. If righteousness is a status you must achieve, assurance is very dangerous. If someone's assured that that they're righteous and they don't actually have a status, they're going to stop working. It's not going to motivate them. So the church at the time was very concerned that people not have righteousness because they wanted them to be motivated out of fear and guilt to keep pressing on. They don't want them to stop working. But for the reformers, they said, no, 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 that's not how it works. Righteousness is a gift given by God to someone who in and of themselves is not righteous because Christ is their righteousness. 
And it doesn't stop motivating them because if they truly understand that, they're not going to do whatever they want. They will do whatever the Lord who gave them this righteousness wants. That's how it works. That's how the logic changed. And so the true biblical gospel, righteousness received, not righteousness achieved, is a gift that keeps on giving. And one of the gifts that it gives is an assurance, a comfort, a joy, a peace that says, Jesus loves me, this I know. So last week we began to consider that matter by looking at 1 John. 1 John is written by a pastor who wants his people to know that they know Christ and that he knows them. Listen to what John said in 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's John's purpose. That's why he wrote. So how do we know? How do we get to a place where we can joyfully and genuinely say from the heart, Jesus loves me, this I know. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. So I gave two answers last week. There's three answers. We're going to look at the third one this week. I gave two last week. And you need to remember, because if, you, if all you hear is this sermon, it could be very discouraging for you. So I have to re- I'm not going to repeat it. It's online for free. Just saying. First answer I gave last week. Assurance of salvation is founded on the solid rock of Christ's character and his completed work. That is the solid rock of assurance. Assurance does not start by looking to self. It does not start by examining your faith, looking at your feelings. There's a place for that. It starts with looking away from self to the Savior. By looking at Christ, who is our advocate, who comes to our aid and comes by our side and says, with the only legal defense that he can give, he's with me. I am his righteousness. Take whatever is his and apply it to my account, and whatever is mine, apply it to his account. That's the solid basis of assurance. And assurance comes when we look to Christ, who is, as John said in 1 John 2, he is our propitiation. He is our atoning sacrifice. He is the one who takes that cup that the Father handed him in the garden, that cup of wrath, and Jesus says, I will drink it for them. And he drinks it to the very bottom, leaving not a drop. And he says, it is finished. That's where assurance is found, on the solid rock of Christ's character and completed work. But wait, there's more. Assurance of salvation is fueled by the unfailing promises of God. The promises of God are those golden keys sprinkled throughout God's word, very generously, that unlock the doors in Doubting Castle. So that when we feel as if we can't stand on that solid rock of character, of Christ's character and completed work, because your sin is too great, you've exhausted his forgiveness, we can take the promise of 1 John 1, 9, and we can say, No, but God says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can use it to unlock that door in Doubting Castle. And what God's promises remind us is that there's always more mercy in him than there is sin in us. Those are the objective grounds of assurance. That's the solid rock that we want to stand on. That's where we want to spend most of our time when thinking about assurance. But there is a third aspect to assurance, that works alongside with the other two that we must deal with. And it's this. Assurance of salvation is authenticated or verified by the fruit inspection tests of Scripture. Now, I know you were hoping probably not to take a test this morning, but you're, you're going to. So if you have your number two pencil, we're going we're gonna to take a test in a moment. But let me explain the test. And I, I'm very attentive with the, with the, the question I ask. We want a joyful and genuine assurance. The joyful nature of the assurance is by looking at those objective grounds, the solid rock of Christ, the promises of God. But we want it to be genuine as well. 
We want to know that it's authentic. And so in order to help us understand that, John gives us a series of tests that are designed to help us look at the work of the Spirit in our lives so that we can know that the faith we have in Christ is a genuine saving faith. Now, tests, you probably don't like them as much as as I do. But this one is necessary to take, but it's also very tricky to navigate. The reason it's necessary is because one of the warnings that the Bible gives us regarding faith, and that is self-deception or a false faith that is a very real and present danger. So for example, in the gospel, Jesus was commonly dealing with those of little faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief and encouraging them. And he would not break a bruised reed or, or quench a smoking flax. But there was also false faith, self-deception, and he dealt with it harshly. So for example, in John 8, Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders about the origin of Jesus' birth, because Jesus had a very suspect birth origin in their minds. And when they're contending about it, Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set me free. He implies to them that they're enslaved and they need to be set free. And they're well, we've never been enslaved. Abraham is our father. And they're resting their faith on the fact that they can look at their genealogy and say, Abraham's my father. Jesus says, no, no, no. You're of your father, the devil. He said, your foundation of your faith is in a wrong place. You're self-deceived. So think of the possibilities concerning assurance as like a road that has two ditches on either side of it. So in that road, which is paved and smooth, free of bumps that everyone wants to drive on, represents those who have genuine saving faith and they have assurance that that faith is saving and genuine and they rest in the sweetness and comfort and peace of that. That's where I, I want all of you to be. That's where I want to be. That's the smooth road. That's the good road. But on the right side of that road is a ditch. And in that ditch are those who have genuine saving faith, but struggle deeply with assurance, that they lack assurance, that they, they cannot see the light of the sun of God's love for them. And they pray more often than not, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, help my unbelief. The objective grounds of assurance like we talked about last week is meant to be for them like a spiritual IV that gives them health and nourishment in their soul so that they might have a better sense that Jesus loves me, this I know. But there's another ditch on the other side of the road. So on the left side of the road, that ditch represents someone who does not have genuine saving faith in Christ, but they believe strongly that they believe. In other words, they're self-deceived. And so... The Bible says that there's something much worse than doubt and despair and discouragement. And that thing is self-deception. And the self-deceived pray something like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other sinners. I thank you that I do this and I do that and I perform this ritual and that ritual that I keep myself from scandalous sins and I'm not like this person over here. They pray like that very confidently, but they do not have genuine saving faith. Or the other side of self-deception is this, they pray, Free from the law, oh happy condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. It's a good hymn. I hope you sing it. I'm just kidding. Because self-deception comes in two forms. It comes in the form of self-righteousness. Look at me. Look at my record. Look what I've done. Or it comes in the form of self-indulgence. I can live however I want. The law is, I'm free from the law so I can live however I want. One of them treats the grace of God as if it's something that can be achieved by their own merits. The other one treats the grace of God as if it's licensed to do whatever they please. Both of them should not have assurance or because they do not have genuine saving faith. Thus, as tricky and difficult and 
perhaps even discouraging as these, these tests may be, they're necessary because they're given by John to help us see if faith is genuine, if it is authentic. So you might have seen these shows where there, there's these pawn shops and people will come in and, and they'll be filming. Someone has this very valuable thing that they want to sell. So I was watching one. He believed he had a 1915 original Babe Ruth rookie card in the Red Sox jersey as a pitcher. It's worth about $70,000 if it's authentic. So what does the pawn shop owner do when this man brings his card? He brings in an expert and they run tests on it. So they're looking at the font. Does it match the font of the original 1915 card? What about the texture and feel of it? Does it have the same material, the same texture? What about, there, there was writing on the back because they came out of either cigarette packs or from newspapers, oddly enough. That's how you got cards back then. Um, and he's examining all those things for marks of authenticity and genuineness to see if it's that. That's what John in one sense is doing here in First John. He's giving us these tests because there are marks of genuine saving faith. It brings forth fruit. And he's saying, look at that fruit and see if it's there. So here, without further ado, is the test. Test number one, there's four of them. Test number one that John gives is the test of conviction of sin. The test of conviction of sin. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 to 10. It's, it's an odd test. You probably wouldn't think that it would start there, but this is where John starts, and it's very important that we start here. 1 John 1, 8 to 10. Here's the test for you. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. When Jesus told his disciples that the Spirit was coming, one of the first things he said the Spirit would do is he would come and convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So John is in a sense saying, here's the test question. Has the Holy Spirit come and produced in you the fruit of the conviction of sin? One of the the fruits of genuine saving faith by the Holy Spirit, worked in us by the Holy Spirit, is a broken and contrite heart before God that realizes that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit is how Jesus starts the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. So let me ask you this test question. Do you know what it's like to pray with David from the heart, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Do you resonate with the prodigal son who when he finally came to his senses, as Luke mentions, returned to the father saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am not even worthy to be called your son. Hire me as one of your servants. Do you identify with the apostle Paul's internal wrestling? As as holy and far along in sanctification as the apostle Paul was, here was the mark of the spirit in him. I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, that is the thing I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Here's another question. Instead of always excusing sin and trying to prove why you are in the right and the other person is in the wrong, do you have those occasions where excuses evaporate, self-justification flees away, and you actually own and admit your sin and say, I am sorry, please forgive me. When you see sin in your own life, does it cause you grief? Do you, do you want to hate it? Do you wish it wasn't the case that it was there? Now, if you can say yes to any of these questions, even if it's not as frequent or as thorough or as deep as you'd like it to be, understand that is a fruit of genuine saving faith, a sign of the Spirit at work in you bringing about a conviction of sin. So that's test number one. Now, test number two. Test number two that John gives 
is a test of our belief about Christ, our conviction of who Christ is. So look at 1 John 2, 22 and 23. We're going to jump to a couple places here. 1 John 2, 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now jump to chapter 4, verse 15. He repeats the same kind of test. 4.15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And then jump to chapter 5, verse 1, which I read at the beginning. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So in, in this test, our test of belief about Christ, our conviction of sin, John is asking you if the Holy Spirit has produced in you the fruit of a true knowledge of Christ and a confession about him. Paul will tell us later that no one can say Christ is Lord except by the Spirit. Now, he doesn't mean just that you can utter those words with your mouth as if you can form the language. He means, do you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is who he said he is? So let me ask you some questions on this part of the test. Do you agree with Peter when he says to Jesus, to whom else shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Can you give a hearty amen to Paul when he says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That no one else can bridge that gap between God and man. Could you confess along with Thomas, who after seeing Jesus risen from the dead, being able to see the piercing in his side said, my Lord and my God. Or even if you struggle to grasp the depths of the hypostatic union, or if you've never heard of that, or you can't even spell it, can you say and affirm that though Jesus from all eternity was equal with God, very God of very God, yet for our sake and for our salvation, he became man, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and buried, and on the third day he rose again from the dead, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And he's given the name that is above every name, and at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Can you affirm that? No one can confess that Jesus is who he said he is except by the Spirit of God. So there's more than just theology to our confession and conviction, but there's not less than. If you can say yes to these even if your knowledge isn't as deep as you wished it be and your adoration of that knowledge isn't as abundant as you wished it were, understand that it's a fruit of genuine saving faith. A sign of the Spirit working in you, that which is pleasing in the sight, enlightening your minds in the knowledge of Christ. Test number three is the test of obedience to the commands of God. So jump back to chapter two, verses three to six. But the third kind of fruit inspection test is obedience. Chapter two, verses three to six says this. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Here's the logic of what Paul is saying. You can say, I know him. And, and, and that's, how, how do you 
test that? How do you verify that? That's not something you can like tangibly put under a microscope and verify that statement. What John is saying, if someone says they know him, we can test and verify, do they obey him? Do they honor the Lord that they say they know? Because obedience is the external evidence of an internal desire to love and know Christ. So kids, here's an illustration that might help you think of, of the importance of obedience and how it, it evidences whether we, we love and honor the Lord. So there's a mother who came to her two kids and she gave both kids the same command, go and clean your room. And both the kids said, we love you, mom, and we're gonna honor you. So they both go to their room. She comes five minutes later to check on kid number one. Kid number one hasn't started cleaning up his room at all. And the mom says, why, why aren't you cleaning up your room? And he says, oh, mom, don't worry, I'll get to it. I've been meditating on what you said to me about cleaning my room, and it's just wonderful. She goes to kid number two, and kid number two is, is cleaning his room. And he's not done yet, but he's, he's still working. She comes back another five minutes later, goes to kid number one, still not cleaning his room. He said, honey, I told you to clean your room. He said, mom, not only am I meditating on what you said, I've been memorizing what you said. Clean your room, clean your room. I can say it, I, I memorized it. Goes to kid number two. He's cleaning his room. He's working, he's, dil- he's not done yet, but he's still working diligently. Comes back five minutes later, third time. Goes to kid number one. Still not cleaning his room. He says, honey, what are you doing? He said, mom, not only am I meditating on it, memorizing it, I've actually been looking up the Greek words for clean your room. They're fascinating. It's just amazing what you can find. Goes to kid number three. He's done cleaning his room. Which kid actually honored their mom? Which kid who said they loved their mom actually demonstrated? It's kid number two. It's kid number two. One of the marks of saving faith is that there is evidence that the Spirit is at work in us, writing the law on our hearts. Actually working, writing God's law on our hearts and bringing it out in our lives. Now, this is where the test gets quite tricky. Because I have never met a genuine believer who was perfectly content and satisfied with their present levels of obedience. There is always a level of holy dissatisfaction in the Christian life. There's always a level of which we say, oh, for the grace to love and honor him and glorify him more. I I just wish there was more. Yes, I I do want to obey him, but it's just not where it ought to be, right? So this is not a test of sinlessness, okay? Why is it not a test of sinlessness? We would have to fail test number one to pass the test if that were the test. John's not contradicting himself. This is not a test of sinlessness. It is a test of, if there is in you, a genuine, sincere, albeit imperfect and impartial practice of obedience because you love Christ and want to honor him. Now, John Newton, I think he did one of the best jobs of of kind of capturing how we should think about this test in a statement. See if you can resonate with this statement. He said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not even what I hope to be in the world to come. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am because of what he's done in my life. Can you resonate with that statement when it comes to your com- the commands of Christ and, and following and honoring him. Do you try to order your ways after God's ways as much as you can and know, knowing that he is your ultimate authority and his word is your ultimate standard? Or is there kind of a picking and choosing an a la carte approach to the word, an intentional a la carte approach? Do you desire and seek to have the character of Christ formed in you? Is it the aim of your life to have the fruit of the spirit in your life, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness in you? Now, if you can say yes to any of these, even though your obedience is often slow, even though it's fickle and faltering at times and doesn't come as impulsively naturally as you'd like it to, 
if you can say yes to any of these, understand that it is a sign of genuine saving faith, a sign of the Spirit at work in you, writing the law of God on your heart. So test number four now. Test number four is the test of love for the brothers, as John said. The love for, particularly the family of God, but a love for others, generally. Look at 1 John 4, 19 to 21. There's a number of places he gives this test, but I think this one kind of consolidates it. 4, 19 to 21. We love because he first loved us. The logic is very important there. We love because he first loved us, but we do love. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Again, when someone says, I love God, that's a statement you can't test, you can't verify, you can't put under a microscope, but you can look for the fruit of it. When someone says, I love God, the genuineness of that statement is authenticated and verified by love for others. The love of Christ that we lay hold of by faith, if it is a true, genuine statement, will in turn produce love for others out of us. The spirit that comes and pours the love of God in us also comes to work in us to pour the love of God out of us. That's how he comes to work. So when there are opportunities for service, is is there a desire and a practice of service toward others? When there are others who have burdens to bear, do you desire and practice bearing the burdens of others? Is there there a love for the fellowship of the saints to, to gather with God's people or do you just love living a lone ranger, isolated life? Do you fight against the impulse to seek revenge, return evil for evil, withhold forgiveness, instead desiring to practice loving others as Christ loved you and laid down his life for you? Now, if you can say yes to any of these, even though your love for others is not as robust as you'd want or comes as naturally to you as you'd wish, understand that it is a genuine sign of saving faith, a sign of the Spirit at work in you, pouring the love of God not only in you, but out of you as well. All right, pencils down. Fruit inspection test is over. Now, a test like that where you're forced to do self-analysis, where you have to look in the mirror, the spiritual mirror, usually has a few different outcomes, a few different kind of test result groups that it breaks down into. And I want to speak to each one of those groups. Perhaps you look at the results of your fruit inspection test and you write in big red ink, like you know, I saw my papers growing up, F, failed, okay? There's no fruit in my life. And if there is, it's it's rotten. I failed. Well, I have good news for you. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The primary effect of that test is to bolster assurance, but there is another purpose of that test. It's to awaken us to our spiritual and moral bankruptcy before the Lord. It's, It's like the shock paddles to our cardiovascular system, spiritually speaking, so that we would awaken to the fact that I don't pass this test. I have a great need for Christ, and praise the Lord, there is a great Christ for my need. And so if you think you failed, here's a sweet promise for you. Jesus says in John 6, all who come to me, I will in no way cast out. All who come to me, I will in no way cast out. The door of salvation is open. Christ is standing there, arms open wide, and hanging on that door is a sign that says, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. All, all come and welcome to Jesus Christ. But maybe you're thinking, I failed the test, but I can't come to him until I pass the test. That's not how the test works 
You have the logic backwards. You will never pass this test until you come to Christ knowing that you failed the test. It is only by abiding in Christ that you can bear much fruit. For apart from him, you can do nothing. If you look at the test results and think, I failed, that doesn't mean work harder. It means go to him, go to him, go to him. Now, maybe you're in the second group. You look at the test results and you say, I'm not yet what I ought to be. By the grace of God, I've passed the test. He's, He's at work in me. Cherish that. To have faith is the sweetest thing. To have assurance of faith makes the sweetest thing even sweeter. It's the cream on top of saving faith. Never take assurance for granted. It is a precious gift, one that can be easily misplaced and set in the wrong area. What I mean by that is sometimes when we're enjoying the sweetness of assurance and comfort and peace in Christ, we can subtly and unknowingly shift the grounds of our assurance from Christ onto our assurance that we are Christ. Very dangerous, very subtle shift. So Charles Spurgeon, he gives this very helpful counsel in view of that danger. This is Spurgeon speaking. He said this, At this moment, after 35 years, I possess a comfortable and clear assurance that I have eternal life. But my ground of confidence today is exactly what it was when I first came to Christ. I have no confidence in my confidence. I place no reliance upon my reliance. My assurance lies in the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that whosoever believes in him has everlasting life. He says, dear congregation, never stir beyond that. Keep to your first love, however far you go in other directions, however much fruit there is, stand fast on the solid rock of Jesus' blood and righteousness. All other ground is sinking sand. Now there's a third group. Perhaps you fall into this group, which says, I don't know if I failed. I don't know if I passed. I'm just discouraged by the test. Assurance seems to be something that constantly escapes me, that I don't have. Now, the reason why it's important to address this group is there are some who feel a great sense of guilt for not having that sweet sense of assurance. As if God commands us somewhere to have assurance. Assurance is not a command anywhere. Let me remind you that we are not justified by our sense of assurance. We are justified not by our ability to find spiritual fruit in our lives. We are justified by one thing and one thing only, by faith alone in Christ alone. And that comes through grace alone. Even a weak and struggling faith, and I believe, help my unbelief kind of faith, that feels like you're just barely touching the hem of Christ's garment. That is a saving faith. Now, there may be tons of fruit on the tree, but again, you're not justified by your ability to see the fruit on the tree. You're justified by Christ. Our hope is found in the object, not the instrument. So the meat and potatoes of assurance is the person and work of Christ, the promise of God. Live on the meat and potatoes of assurance. The tests are a side dish. So for every one look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. This is where the solid rock of assurance stands. Let's pray.